0: This podcast contains references to suicide that may be disturbing to some listeners. It's August 1939, and in Sydney, James Robert Walker is walking out of prison, having served just over half of his sentence for robbing a jewellery store. Overall, he's done pretty well, to only have done five of the past 10 years in jail, given that it's common knowledge he murdered two men, James John in Fitzroy in 1933 and Big Jerry Lynch in Sydney in 1937, and seriously wounded two others. All said and done though, Walker reckons he's a changed man. He says he has a quote, entirely new outlook on life, and that he wants to work and forget the past. As much as Walker might want to forget his past, his past isn't about to forget him. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's Most Vicious Gunman. After his release from prison, Walker went back to Melbourne and sought out The Brain to ask for his help getting a job, that is, a regular job type job. Ever the generous bloke, The Brain gave Walker £100 and arranged for him to meet with a hotel licensee. Walker would call this man Harry Brown and wouldn't specify the hotel but it was Eli Phillips, then licensee of the Australian Hotel on Spencer Street. Phillips was referred to in newspapers as the Prince of Sport because he was such a staunch supporter of the VFL and even more renowned as a racehorse owner and track identity. If the brain was leading bookmaker and punter Alf King, it'd fit that King would have known Phillips well and had enough pull to get him to give Walker a job, even though Walker was a jailbird with a bad reputation. And Eli Phillips didn't give Walker just any job. He made him the manager of The Australian, which then billed itself as Melbourne's most refined hotel. And on Walker's first day, he was entrusted with a bag containing 1200 pounds, which he was to walk across town to the bank. Walker resisted temptation, but as he repeated this task in the ensuing weeks, he worried that he might be a target for armed robbery and then be blamed for staging a fake hold-up. Walker relayed his fear to Phillips, who said that when he was going to do the banking, he should just stick his hand in his coat pocket and make it look like he was holding a gun. Phillips told him, There is not a crim in Australia game enough to try to rob you if they think you've got a gun. For the next few months, that's what Walker, the gambling man, did. And lucky for him, no one dared call his bluff. As Walker learned the hotel business, he dreamed of buying his own hotel. All he needed was the money and to stay on the straight and narrow. Then, all of a sudden, Walker was in love. At a party in Albert Park, he met a woman named Margaret Adams. No relation to Herbert or to me. Rita, as she was known, was tall, with curly red hair and blue-green eyes. She was quick-witted and a sultry singer with a low, husky voice. To see her dance, Walker said, quote, keyed up your imagination as you watched her tall, slim, exciting body swing to the music's rhythm. He'd never been so attracted to any woman. A whirlwind romance followed, and 18 days later, Walker and Rita were married at St. Michael's Church in North Melbourne. Far from being any sort of femme fatale, Rita was a level-headed homemaker who did everything she could to keep Walker out of trouble. And that included warning him about the bad vibe she immediately felt when she met the brain despite the fact that The Brain had so recently got Walker his job at the Australian Hotel. About that job? Well, it was under threat. One Monday, Walker was called to see Eli Phillips, who said he'd no longer be able to do the banking. When Walker asked why, Phillips showed him two typewritten letters he'd received in the past week from a sender who called himself a friend. The letter writer claimed to be a crook who knew and liked Walker. That's why he felt compelled to warn him about what was coming. He'd heard that two Sydney crooks who hated Walker had worked out he didn't carry a gun when he took the hotel's cash to the bank. Their plan was to rob and kill him. Walker defiantly said to hell with the threat and he was going to do the banking that day. He took the office gun, and if the crooks tried to rob him, well, they'd be sorry. Walker made the trip to the bank without incident, but when he returned, he'd had a change of heart. He reluctantly told Phillips he was giving a week's notice. It was obvious, he said, that the underworld wasn't going to let him live down his past, and that wasn't fair to anyone. Phillips was upset, but Walker couldn't be dissuaded, and the following Monday was his last day on the job. In recognition of his unfortunate situation and the six months' loyal service he'd given under dangerous circumstances, Phillips gave Walker outstanding references and one month's pay. But he wouldn't have if he'd known who wrote those two letters. Walker. It was his way of leaving a good job with a clean slate and not angering the brain who'd set it up for him meanwhile philip's generosity meant walker had enough cabbage to fund the next phase of his plan to raise cash for his own hotel walker was going to open a baccarat club in the east melbourne apartment he shared with rita his setup was pretty sweet 24 players sat at a table that he'd had specially made with a curved cutout for the croupier, who looked flash in a dinner suit Walker bought for him. Gamblers enjoyed the charming Rita as the hostess with the mostess and were provided with a free supper, cooked by an in-house chef, had their complimentary drinks handed to them by a waiter and, at the end of the night, could take a private car service home. Walker wanted repeat business, and that meant his game had to be strictly on the level. The Groupier dealt cards from packets sealed in plastic, and Walker didn't extend credit to any players. In Baccarat, the house takes a percentage of the winnings. Walker was doing well, and one night from 6pm to 6am, he raked in £125 pounds before expenses, which is about 10 grand in today's money. But not long into his new venture, Walker caught his croupier, who he paid £10 a night, trying to steal £30. Given he'd turned over a new leaf, Walker, instead of pumping this bloke full of lead, merely kicked him down the stairs. He didn't even sack him, so he must have been pretty good with cards, and told him to come back next week, but that if he ever tried anything like that again, Walker would kill him. Walker wanted big money gamblers at his table and the brain brought some of these gentlemen to the club. One such fellow, called the Gambler by Walker, would win or lose a thousand pounds without batting an eyelid. Another was an elegantly dressed, charming cigar smoker named James Coates. And he was internationally infamous, nicknamed the Mark Foy, which was rhyming slang for a man with a boyish face, which James Coates had. Coates was born in 1901 in Broken Hill, moved to Melbourne as a youth, and operated as a card sharp and pickpocket, landing himself several stints behind bars. But destined for bigger cons, Coates set sail for London, where he enrolled in a deportment and etiquette academy to better pass himself off as an upper-class British gent. Speaking with an Oxford accent, Coates found upper-class victims in England and Europe. In one scam, he had an article about himself as an inventor, complete with photo, inserted into copies of a magazine, which he then distributed around an ocean liner. Fellow passenger Sir Michael Watson was intrigued and invested £54,000 with Coates before the conman disappeared at the next port. Coates' other victims included an Indian prince, the son of the King of Sweden, an Austrian nobleman, an Australian grazier and, reportedly, the Prince of Wales. By the time James Coates walked into Walker's Baccarat game, he'd had many more adventures, cons, arrests and escapes, but had returned chastened to Melbourne to live in a comfortable South Yarra flat and dabble in racing scams and wartime black market rackets. No surprise then that this master con man and card sharp offered to rig Walker's table for him. Walker refused he wanted to run a club that was on the level. At least, that's what he later claimed. About five months into the club business, at the end of one night as it crept towards dawn, the players at the table dwindled until only Coates and the Gambler were left. The Gambler lost 400 pounds and asked Walker if he could continue to play using IOUs. This time, Walker agreed. After all, the Gambler was good for it, he was an upstanding citizen with a lot of money. Coates' run of luck continued, and by the time they were done, the gambler owed him £1,250. In July 1940, Walker was raided and fined £50 for keeping a common gaming house. Having by now amassed a stash of cash, and reluctant to court further trouble with the law, Walker decided to bow out of the Baccarat business, but he was still owed the percentage from the £1,250 that Coates had won from the gambler in his club. Except Coates hadn't been able to collect. Coates said the gambler told him he had cash flow problems. Then Walker heard something far worse. The gambler was telling everyone that Walker, Coates and the croupier had conspired to cheat him with rigged cards. Incensed, Walker went to confront the gambler at an upstairs Lonsdale Street club he knew the man frequented. There, he was told to wait at the door. As he did, a short man appeared. He asked if Walker was the bloke who wanted to see the gambler. Walker said, yes, he was. Without taking his hand out of his pocket, this man fired a concealed gun. Walker felt a sharp pain in his right thigh. Did that hit you, Bob? This creep asked. Walker didn't stick around to answer and risk another bullet. He bolted down the stairs, hailed a taxi, and went home, where Rita bandaged what proved to be a minor bullet wound. All Walker could conclude was that, just as Herbert Adams had been shot in the leg as a warning in St Kilda in 1933, this was warning him off pursuing the gambler because the short man, could easily have blown Walker's head clean off. It wasn't long before Walker learned who'd shot him. His name was Leslie Walkerton, a young gun for hire who went by the nickname Scotland Yard because depending on who you spoke to, he a thought he knew everything, B daubed in his rivals to the cops, or C loved detective novels. Walker had to make a decision. He'd already gotten away with murder twice. If he'd killed Scotland Yard and got caught, he'd hang. So, according to Walker and on Reader's advice, he decided to forget the whole incident. But Coates egged him on, saying he'd organise a meeting between the Gambler and Scotland Yard so Walker could kill two birds with one stone. Walker said no. Instead of reverting to his bad old ways, he was now looking forward to bright new days. The licensee of the Centenary Hotel in Lonsdale Street had a smaller hotel in the country that was up for grabs. On the night of the 8th of October, 1940, Walker and Rita went to meet this bloke at his Lonsdale Street venue. While they were in the Centenary Hotel talking about the deal, the phone rang and the licensee passed the caller's message on. It was Coates. He was outside and needed to see Walker. Walker stepped out. Coates said Walker had to be careful. The Gambler and Scotland Yard were waiting outside his flat in East Melbourne and they planned to kill him. Coates asked Walker if he had a gun. He said he didn't. Coates volunteered to go get one for him and said he'd be back soon. Back inside the hotel, after 15 minutes, the phone rang again and Coates said he was outside. Stepping from the hotel, Walker saw Coates leaning against a car and then scotland yard stepped from the shadows and started shooting a bullet ripped into walker's chest passing through his right lung he spun around and tried to get back into the hotel but the door was locked scotland yard fired again and walker quote felt the pain as the burning hot steel seemed to nail my arm to the wooden door This bullet had hit his elbow, ricocheted down through his arm and exited through his hand. Walker ran for the road and now he felt the worst agony as a bullet shattered his kneecap, lodging amid the broken cartilage. Scotland Yard kept on shooting. Walker recalled, I had often wondered what I would do when death stared me in the face. I found out from practical experience. I screamed. Leaving him for dead, Scotland Yard and Coates made their getaway. As blood and life ebbed from his body, Walker remembered Rita cradling him as the ambulance and police arrived. Who shot you, Bob? asked a homicide detective. Walker, like his own victims over the years, refused to say a single word that would help the cops. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Walker survived his emergency surgery in Melbourne Hospital. While he was recovering, a mystery caller rang the hospital to inquire about his condition and then said, tell him to stay there for if he comes out, we'll get him properly next time. Recuperating in hospital, Walker entertained himself with fantasies about killing coats. Curiously, though, he didn't hold a grudge against Scotland Yard, who'd actually pulled the trigger, reckoning he was just doing a job for money. After three weeks, Walker walked from hospital on crutches. Taking the threat against his life seriously, he and Rita went to Sydney so he could continue his convalescence. While there, Walker learned what had really gone down at his Baccarat Club. Coates had conspired with his treacherous croupier. They'd arranged cards in a winning sequence, resealed the plastic around the packets, and set them aside to use on the gambler when the opportunity presented itself. Coates knew he was a dead man if Walker ever encountered the gambler and found out the truth. So he had hired Scotland Yard to kill Walker. Reformed or not, there was no way Walker was going to let this stand. Telling Rita he was going to Brisbane for a few days Walker got a 45 and flew to Melbourne. There, he ran into the brain and trusted him with the details of how he'd been set up. The brain, who, as usual, knew all the people involved, was shocked, but he urged Walker to hold off on any rash action. What he'd do, the brain said, was explain what had happened to Scotland Yard and to the gambler. Once he had... The Brain reckoned, Scotland Yard would probably want to knock Coates himself. The Brain contacted Walker the next day to say he'd spoken to both men and they were on the warpath against Coates. The Brain's plan was for them all to meet at 1030 the next night in Lonsdale Street to discuss their next move. They do their talking in a blue taxi owned by Scotland Yard's brother because it was quieter than a club or pub. But that next night, Walker arrived early and saw the Brain and Scotland Yard talking not with the gambler, but with Coates. They were all in on it. They hadn't killed him the first time, and now they'd set him up a second time. That the Brain was part of this, that was the ultimate betrayal. Walker rang a friend and got him to deliver his 45. Hailing a cab, he cruised past Scotland Yard's taxi, ensuring that he was seen. As he'd anticipated, the hitman and his driver gave chase in their taxi, with Walker luring them towards the dark and quiet of Little Collins Street, where he planned to spring out and start blasting. But before he could, Scotland Yard leaned out of his taxi window and began firing. Walker's taxi was peppered with bullets, though neither he nor the driver were hurt. Melbourne's Herald newspaper headlined their 26th of November story, Five Shots Fired From Taxi At Passenger In Another, Mystery Vendetta In City. The article made it clear that despite Walker's refusal to talk, the police were in no doubt it was a sequel to the previous shooting. Realising he was beaten and would be six feet under if he stuck around any longer, Walker went back to Sydney. There, Living with Rita, Walker went straight. He got a job on the docks, working four or five days a week, and entertained himself after hours with gambling. Walker might have been retired from major crime, but he had a few minor run-ins with the law, fined in Sydney in December 1941 for riotous behaviour and fined in Lithgow in August 1942 for negligent driving and failing to produce a licence. With the Japanese in the war and things heating up for Australia, Walker decided to do his bit. Not in military uniform, because even if he hadn't had an extensive criminal record, the painful rheumatoid arthritis he'd developed in his knee after being shot meant he wouldn't have been able to pass any sort of physical. Instead, Walker signed on to the Queen Mary as a kitchen porter and did a two-month voyage taking soldiers to the Suez Canal. When Walker got back to Sydney, he was ready to go again and heard he could join an American liberty ship sailing from Brisbane. Quickly constructed cargo vessels, liberty ships were the workhorses of the American war effort with just one of these boats able to carry nearly 3,000 jeeps, or 450 tanks, or 230 million rounds of rifle ammunition. Walker didn't later write that his passion for Rita had cooled, or vice versa, but by early 1943, he was ready to say goodbye. He remembered, "'As I left Central Railway Station that night,' Rita kissed me and said she had a feeling she would never see me again. Rita was wrong about that, but it would be almost exactly a decade until she saw him again. James Robert Walker left Australia in March 1943 aboard the Liberty ship Willis van Devanter. Within three days of arriving in the US, he had a social security card, a shipping card, seamen's papers, and a Coast Guard passport. He worked on another Liberty ship in the engine room, going to India, and in October 1943, he said, shipped for the north of Scotland, where he and other merchant seamen did three weeks worth of drills to prepare them for the death run which was what the journey across the icy seas to the port of Murmansk in Russia was then called. In the popular understanding of World War II, these liberty ship convoys are little known, but they rate as among the most dangerous of missions, with ships attacked at will by German submarines and planes. At one point, any man sailing the death run had a one in three chance of not coming back. Yet, without these Liberty ships, which supplied the Soviet army so it could fight the Nazis on the Eastern Front, World War II might have been won by Hitler. Though he wasn't in military uniform, Walker did play his own small part in the Allied victory. His most terrifying experience, he said, was when 16 ships from his convoy of 48 were lost to German subs on that crossing from Scotland to Russia. Then. After being stuck in Russia for three months, another six Liberty ships were lost on the return trip. Arriving back in New York City in 1944, Walker said he had shot nerves and increasingly painful rheumatoid arthritis in his bullet-affected knee. Adding to his problems was his ongoing self-loathing and depression. Guilty that he'd left Rita, he wrote to her saying he'd shamed her and his family and he wasn't coming back to Australia, so she should divorce him and remarry. Rita wrote back saying their vows were, till death do us part. Soon after, the despondent Walker cruised the Manhattan streets and bought a balcony ticket at the Mayfair Picture Theatre on Broadway. Hollywood's offering was entertaining, but the pain in his knee struck worse than ever and Walker suddenly found himself in absolute agony. And the hurt in his head and heart was every bit as bad. Walker tortured himself with regrets about his mother and family and Rita and all the bad things he'd done and all the good things he hadn't done. He wrote, These were my thoughts as the pain got so bad that I thought I would scream. Now it struck him. If he took care of the till-death-do-us-part bit, Rita would at least be released from their marriage. Unable to take any more, Walker jumped out of his movie seat and hurled himself off the balcony. Plummeting 27 feet, he heard a woman scream as the world spun and then darkness swallowed him up and there was nothing. Walker awoke in New York City's famous Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital having fractured both ankles, broken three ribs, and severely cut up his back. He was transferred to the Coast Guard Merchant Marine Hospital, where he spent two months before convalescing at another sailor's hospital. There, a kindly doctor told him his problems were emotional. It was all about what he was holding back in his heart. Walker sobbed uncontrollably, saying he wouldn't have been able to stop crying even for a million dollars. Recovered sufficiently for release, Walker went back to sea in the post-war world, spending his time on land gambling and winning and losing huge amounts. He reckoned one night in New Orleans, he came ashore with $1,600 and lost it all in under an hour. But the next morning, he raised $400 at a hock shop and by that afternoon had won $26,000 and a car belonging to the casino. Walker stayed in New Orleans in 1947, renting rooms from a Mrs. Sutton. But a few months after his huge win, he was broke again. Suffering another bout of arthritis and depression, he tried to soothe his woes with a whiskey bender. But the drink only made things worse. So Walker sealed up his room's windows and doors and stuck his head in the gas oven. He was just starting to get dizzy when he heard Mrs. Sutton call out, Mr. Walker, can you smell something? Despite himself, Walker burst out laughing. He recalled, Seeing I had my head in the oven with the gas going full ahead, I ought to be able to smell something. His bleak mood receded. Quote, I had a few more drinks of whiskey and forgot all about it. While Walker's self-destructive tendencies had increased, he said that during his time in the United States, he only had one tangle with the law. And that was when he was on a picket line during a seamen's strike and served 90 days in prison. Available immigration records do bear out Walker's post-war maritime work and travels to numerous international ports. He claimed to have had a bad attack of arthritis in Germany and, while stuck in hospital, made the decision to go back to Australia. His plan, he said, was to visit all of his Melbourne friends, go on a massive booze bender, and then kill himself. Word of his death, he felt sure would reach Rita, who he'd lost touch with years ago. Then, if she wanted to, she'd finally be able to remarry. Walker got a job in Rotterdam as a fireman on a big ship headed for Fremantle. He arrived back in Australia in late December 1952 and started boozing. Then he booked a train for Melbourne, but got waylaid when he got off in Kalgoorlie to gamble and got himself arrested for SP betting. While in Kalgoorlie, Walker received letters from Melbourne friends who caught him up on what he'd missed over the past decade. If Walker had been fantasising about killing his enemies, he now learned the job was half done. At about 2.30am on the 12th of September 1945, Leslie Walkerton, aka Scotland Yard, left a Baccarat game in Richmond to find a tyre on his Buick had been let down. As he went to change it, he was shot four times, the bullets nearly severing one arm and demolishing his stomach. Amazingly, he lived long enough to get to St Vincent's Hospital, where he told the cops, don't waste your time on this, I will fix it my own way, I am saying nothing. And that was true when Scotland Yard died the next day. Then... Around 7.20pm on the 20th of July 1947, James Coates, a.k.a. The Mark Foy, then living in Wall Street, South Yarra, told his wife he was going out to buy a newspaper. He never returned. Coates' body was found in a vacant allotment on the corner of Union Street and Punt Road. He'd been shot four times, one bullet entering his neck and exiting his face. The murders of Scotland Yard and James Coates remain unsolved. Walker's mother, he learned, had also died back in 1946. Her passing had been brutal in its own way. Walker wrote, she had spent the last years of her life writing endless letters to shipping companies in the United States seeking some word of her son. Learning how his mum had died, walker broke down and wept as for the other woman in his life he was told rita was now living with thomas fogarty who he came to understand was a thief and a burglar prone to beating up on women walker was disappointed but felt rita had quote made her choice and that was that more infuriatingly, Walker learned via letter that the brain had retired a rich man but was now suffering from an incurable disease. This would also tally with the brain being Alf King. Newspapers reported in 1947 that King had retired from bookmaking and was going to America to seek treatment for a serious medical condition. While he hadn't gone back into bookmaking, King was now a horse breeder and apparently living with his illness. Whoever the brain was and whatever he was suffering, Walker decided that he would be the cure. In his words, I knew a way of blasting that disease right out of his system. Walker left for Melbourne, arriving on Friday the 6th of March. He stayed at the YMCA the next day, he met a man who he'd only refer to as The Fix. Walker also caught up with The Thing and went to his St Kilda place to talk about old times. That The Thing and Herbert Adams are one and the same was best indicated by what Walker later told the court, that he'd been at the Barclay Street house of his friend Digger Adams when something incredible happened. With his back to the door, a woman had walked in, put her hands over his eyes, and said, Guess who's got you? Walker didn't have to guess. He knew her voice even after a decade. Rita. Turned out she was living nearby in Alma Street, St Kilda. Ten years apart seemed to melt away, and they got on famously, though Rita couldn't stay long as she had to be somewhere but Walker saw her again on Sunday at her apartment in Alma Street. Rita told him she was in contact with Johnny Devine, who Walker had shot up all those years ago. Devine apparently didn't hold any grudges, and in a letter passed to Walker via Rita, he told the truth about why he had been going to shoot Walker that night in the truck in Caulfield. Walker didn't specify the details of that letter, but he wrote, "'It only confirmed what I had known for years. "'The brain and the thing would use you "'for what you were worth, then sell you out.'" So Walker added the thing, aka Herbert Digger Adams, to his kill list. On Tuesday the 10th of March, Walker took a room in South Yarra at the house of a couple who knew Rita. That afternoon, he met The Fix, who gave him a sawn-off shotgun and two packages of cartridges. The following day, Walker saw a man who reckoned he could get the brain to The Thing's place in Barclay Street. Soon, it was set. The brain would arrive at The Thing's place at 7.45 p.m. on St. Patrick's Day. Walker's two old friends, both now proved enemies, were about to die. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Subscribe to make sure you get the third and final part of this episode when it's released on Monday. In the meantime, I'd love you to help spread the word about Forgotten Australia by leaving an iTunes review and telling a friend or two, or ten, or twenty. You can learn more about Robert Walker and other stories at the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast and at my website ForgottenAustralia.com. Dot .com This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash truecrimeadfree. That's amazon.com slash truecrimeadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.